Okay, everybody open up your Bibles. Today we're going to be covering Mark chapter 11, verses 1 through 11. John, this is what what is known to most Christians as the triumphal entry. This is where Jesus is comes into Jerusalem. We're going to read this in a little bit. He's going to come in on a on a donkey and you know, palms. This is like the Palm Sunday passage. This is where there's just a lot of celebration with Jesus. But it's interesting because the Mark account has a little bit of a different take than the Matthew account of what happens once Jesus gets to Jerusalem and goes to the temple. So we're going to get into all those details, but basically like the the overarching question that we have for people as as we approach this text is, are you willing to follow Jesus in the highs and the lows? Because that's really what we're going to see. This high point at the triumphal entry, and then this like awkwardly anticlimactic, almost like a low point when Jesus gets to the temple. And the question for people, I mean, this really, I think a lot of people have experienced this in their Christian walk. Like you're going to have peaks, you're going to have, you know, mountaintop experiences with Jesus, and you're going to have valleys. And some people bail on Jesus in the valleys. Actually, some people even bail on Jesus in the peaks. And that's really what we're going to be talking about today. This really is the the culmination in a lot of ways of the last couple of weeks that we've been looking at. You had this crowd of followers who were going alongside Jesus towards Jerusalem, obviously the 12, but even a, a larger following. We saw how they were filled with, with fear. They were filled with awe. They didn't know what lay ahead. They had some expectations. I think that's going to really play into what we're talking about today with the highs and the lows you know, do we follow Jesus when he doesn't meet our expectations or when his plans are different than the plans that we have? I actually just listened to a teaching on this passage as I was preparing, and, and he recommended it should be renamed the ironic entry <laughs> instead of the triumphal entry, because we do see so many things that contrast. We have the, the king of all kings and the lord of all lords enters humbly on a donkey. And all of the crowds who are shouting, and they're shouting, you know, save us, Hosanna, we're going to get into that in a minute, they didn't recognize that he had come to save them from something so much more important than Roman rule. He came to save them from sin and death. So there's a lot of irony in this passage, and this is one of those passages because it's tied to Palm Sunday, Brian, that if our listeners grew up going to church, you've probably read about the triumphal entry 50 times. And sometimes when we approach a story we're familiar with, we miss a lot of the richness. We miss a lot of the connections it has to even the Old Testament. We're going to see today that there is a lot of a lot of links to Old Testament prophecy in this story. So I just would encourage our listeners to to look at this fresh. You know, look at this today like you aren't familiar with the story of the triumphal entry. Look at it through the eyes of a child. We've talked a lot about childlike faith over the last several weeks. So that's my encouragement to you today as you approach this lesson. Yeah, let's get to the text. Mark 11. Let's start with verses one through three. It says, as Jesus and his disciples approached Jerusalem, they came to the town of Bethpage and Bethany on the Mount of Olives. Jesus sent two of them on ahead. He said, go into that village over there. As soon as you enter it, you will see a young donkey tied there that no one has ever ridden. Untie it, bring it here. And if anyone asks, what are you doing? Just say, the Lord needs it and we'll return it soon. So 
John, like you're saying, a lot of readers might just go right past this. They're like, oh, I remember this story uh, from kids' church or, you know, read my Bible or whatever. But there's something really significant here. The Mount of Olives is a huge deal. There, there are a ton of prophecies in the Old Testament that relate to the Mount of Olives. Well, let's start with a little geography lesson. I doubt you thought you were going to get that when you came to church this morning or when you turned on the podcast. But So Matthew, Mark, and Luke all specifically mention the Mount of Olives. And as you said, Brian, this is a very significant place in the nation of Israel's history. Geographically, the Mount of Olives is to the east of the city of Jerusalem. It's about 2,600 feet in elevation and is, in fact, about 300 feet higher than Jerusalem. If you know anything about the Songs of Ascension in the Old Testament, you'll be reading through the Psalms, and it will say a Psalm of Ascent. Those are the Psalms that that Jewish pilgrims would would begin to sing on their way up the Mount of Olives. So as you started going up the Mount of Olives, that was the beginning of the ascent into the Holy City. So you would you would go up onto the Mount of Olives, and you'd drop back down into the Valley of Kidron, and then you'd climb back up again into the city of Jerusalem. And a lot had happened there in Israel's history. Uh, at the fall of Jerusalem, when they were taken into exile, Ezekiel had had a vision of the glory of the Lord departing from Jerusalem and settling on the Mount of Olives. Uh, according to Zechariah 14.4, the Mount of Olives would be a site of final judgment. And so many of the rabbis and even Josephus associated it with the coming of the Messiah. So Mark, who doesn't often mention specific names of places, is careful to mention the Mount of Olives because he wants to link it to the messianic prophecies and the significance of Jesus entering into Jerusalem. Yeah, so if you want to, if you want to do a little bit of research, um, John, you mentioned this, the Psalms of Ascent. You can read those. Second uh, Samuel 15 talks about this. You, you, John, you mentioned Zechariah 14.4. In Ezekiel eleven twenty three, so we'll put links to all those down below in the show notes if you want to do your own little research. But those are some of the prophecies. So again, the, the Mount of Olives is a big deal, um, but it's more than just the Mount of Olives. But it's it's actually that Jesus now, the Messiah, is going to be coming from the Mount of Olives and entering into Jerusalem. It says in Mark eleven verses four to seven. So back to the text, the two disciples left and found the colt standing in the street tied outside the front door. And as they were untying it, some bystanders demanded, wait, what are you doing? Untying that colt. They said that, well, Jesus told us to grab it and that we, Jesus told us we're okay. We're permitted to take it. And so they brought the colt to Jesus, threw their garments over it, and he sat on it. Now, John, again, this is, this is about prophetic fulfillment. Even this, this is, this is a, a pointer to the Messiah. Yeah, there's a lot going on here, and there's a few things we don't know. So, for example, we we don't know if Jesus had made prior arrangements with the owners of the donkey colt, or just supernaturally, he knew it was going to be there, and the, the Spirit of God had warned the owners that it's going to be needed to be used today. We, we don't know. We know in other Gospels that he said, I'll return it to you, so we, we know that he just borrowed it. But we know that everything played out just as Jesus said it would. Jesus is leaving nothing to chance as his date with the cross comes closer. And I, I think it's interesting how even leading up to this, with all that's going on and all that's on Jesus's mind, all that had to be on his heart, 
He gives the disciples another opportunity here to step out in faith. He's given them a chance to grow in their trust with him. I mean, surely this had to create some anxiety to go and just take this colt from an owner. Even if Jesus had made prior arrangements with the owners of the cold, it it certainly doesn't appear that the disciples were part of that conversation. So they could have been accused of theft. They could have been rejected in their request to take the cult. I'm sure there were some of these what-ifs going through their mind. They, They knew the religious leaders were already looking for reasons to arrest Jesus and possibly them. So what happens if they go into town and word gets back that they're trying to steal a donkey? And as I was reading that, I, it made me think, you know, how often do, do my what-ifs keep me from following the promptings that I give from the Holy Spirit? You know, I'm in the checkout line, and, and I feel like the Holy Spirit is saying, hey, I just want you to pray for this person who's checking you out. That's happened to me many times, and I'm ashamed to say I've, I've been obedient a lot of the times, but not every time. There have been times when I let the what-ifs get in the way, well— you know, what if the people behind me get frustrated that I'm taking longer? Or what if this cashier looks at me like I'm an idiot? You know, I, I let fear get in the way. Uh, but they don't. They were obedient. And it says they said what Jesus had told them to say. So they didn't try to overthink it. They didn't come up with a better answer. They just said the Lord needs it and will return it. They don't give any more detail according to the text. They don't say, you know, Jesus of Nazareth by name. They don't try to build their case. I would have wanted to do that, right? If it was me, I would have been like, well, you know, Jesus, you know, this, this guy who's been healing everyone and making the lame walk and the deaf hear and giving sight to the one, he's the one who needs it. I would never take your donkey, but Jesus needs it. But that, that's not what they do. Then a couple of other things that are significant, Brian, that maybe we'd miss. No one had ever ridden this colt. That means it was unbroken. So for all of you listeners who know anything at all about horses that have never been broken, its natural instinct would have been to throw anyone who would attempt to ride it. In fact, in another gospel, it says that Jesus takes both the colt and its mother as a way to to bring some peace and calm to the colt. But the cult doesn't try to throw Jesus. Instead, it humbly submits to the creator of the universe, demonstrating creation's obedience to Jesus. And then another cool thing is in that culture, only a cult or horse that had never been ridden by anyone else was fit for a king to ride on. So how cool is it that Jesus, even though it's a humble donkey colt, even though it's, it's a symbol of someone coming in peace, Jesus rides like a king would ride in the sense that he rides on an animal that nobody else had ridden on. And then lastly, when Jews were taking their pilgrimage into Jerusalem, it was expected that they would enter on foot. So entering in on a donkey would have stood out. This would have been a big deal. This is another example that Jesus is not trying to come in sneakily here. Jesus is putting on a show, which is quite a transition in the ministry of Jesus. As we've mentioned many times in this series, in the Gospel of Mark, it's just this slow revelation of who Jesus is. He's slowly revealing his real purpose, his real identity to his disciples, to the larger crowd. And now it's getting just more and more clear who Jesus is. And and, and then we get to the next part of the text. And we're going to see that I that that people have an expectation for who Jesus is. People have an excitement for Jesus. I think there's a, there's a, in the Jewish culture, there was an anticipation 
of a Messiah figure like Jesus. And so it says in verses eight through 10 that many in the crowd, so remember Jesus is riding in on this colt, many in the crowd spread their garments on the road ahead of him and others spread leafy branches that they had cut in the fields. And Jesus was in the center of the procession and the people all around him were shouting, here's what they were shouting, praise God, blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord, blessings on the coming kingdom of our ancestor, David. Praise God in highest heaven. So John, this is, you know, this is the crowd in that the highs. We talked at the beginning today, you know, do you follow Jesus in the highs and the lows? These are the, these, and maybe people have experienced this before. You're getting sort of whipped up in the, in the, in the high, the emotional high that you can have sometimes around Jesus. Even people today, I I remember going a couple of years ago with my daughter to a to a worship concert and just looking at all these people in the crowd, just worshiping. And it, it felt like, it felt like probably what heaven is going to feel like. And you get on this, this, this high that I can relate to here. And there's so much more though, to understand when we unpack these verses. Yeah. I think for one of the first times in the gospel of Mark, we actually see genuine worship here. So genuine worship seeks to please God and not ourselves. You know, so often those following Jesus were more concerned with how he could bless them. But in this rare occasion, they they worship him lavishly. They worship him at a cost. So it talks about how the crowd spread their garments on the road ahead of him. Clothing was expensive in Jesus's time. It's not like today. People didn't have closets and dressers full of articles of clothing like we have now. So to lay their clothes on the ground and have Jesus ride over them on this donkey was a genuine sacrifice. They were truly worshiping him. And here's what's interesting. He received this worship. Worship is something only God should receive. This is another proclamation of the deity of Jesus, that Jesus received worship. You know, Up to this point in his ministry, Jesus had tried to veil his identity as Messiah in many different ways. But now that the time has come to go to the cross, now that we're in this final week, he's going to openly declare his identity, and he's going to receive the praise that is due him. This is a major shift in the ministry of Jesus. So think back throughout this journey through the Gospel of Mark, how many times Jesus has tried to keep it a secret, how many times he's tried to heal people almost in in private or at least semi-private how he told people not to go and spread the news about what he had done for them. But now this is a major shift. And and you can see now, really, Brian, why he worked so hard to keep it veiled, because as soon as he makes it plain that he's claiming to be the Messiah, the religious leaders are going to have him killed. they, They already wanted to have him killed. There was already animosity. But once he comes in and boldly receives worship and boldly proclaims to be the Messiah, literally within a week, they have him killed. In Luke's account of the triumphal entry, the Pharisees tell Jesus to stop the crowds from singing his praises, and Jesus replied, if they keep quiet, the stones along the road will burst into cheers. You know, Romans talks about how all creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth because of the sin and death that man brought into the world, and this is the turning point. This is where Jesus is going to set it right on the cross within just a few days. And creation is looking forward to this, and they're going to jump for joy if the people are silent. Now, we read all this, and, and we have the benefit of hindsight. And we're kind of on the outside looking in. We know the end of the story. But imagine the whirlwind that's going through the minds of the disciples. 
I, I believe that as they see the crowd shouting and lining up the roads and, and they say Jesus receiving praise and not trying to shrink back from it, I, I think in their mind they had to be thinking, finally, finally, this is what we signed up for. It, it's the high point, like you said, Brian. Jesus is the Messiah and he's coming to establish his kingdom. But at the same time, Jesus has just told them on the march to Jerusalem, he's going to be delivered and killed. So it just had to be so confusing to them. Now, Mark doesn't specifically tie Jesus riding in on the colt of a donkey as a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, but Matthew does. And in Matthew 21, Matthew specifically says, this took place to fulfill the prophecy that said, rejoice, O people of Zion. Shout in triumph, O people of Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, yet he is humble, riding on a donkey, riding on a donkey's colt. And look how specific that is. That's, I, I love how specific the prophecies are that Jesus fulfilled. John's gospel also mentions it's a fulfillment of the prophecy in Zechariah, but but John, as a disciple, admits at the time they didn't realize that's what was happening. It was only after the resurrection they get it. Now, there's some, some conflict here in a sense, right? Because there's two different pictures of the Messiah in the Old Testament. There's a picture of the conquering king, the Davidic Messiah. That, and you can tell that's what the crowds thought because they talked about the son of David. And this is based on Daniel 7.13. They thought that the Messiah would come as a majestic conqueror. But then we just read Zechariah 9.9 earlier. They thought the Messiah would come in a lowly and humble way, riding on a donkey colt. And so in Jesus's days, some of the rabbis reconciled kind of these two pictures by saying that the Messiah would come humbly to an unworthy Israel, but he would come mightily to a worthy Israel. And since they considered Israel to be worthy, they only looked for the triumphant, conquering Messiah. If you only look at the Daniel 7 portrayal of the Messiah, it's easy to see why so many missed Jesus, why so many missed the, the literal coming of the Messiah. And I, I think this is a reminder to us why the whole counsel of God is important. Because if we're not careful, if we just cherry pick the verses or passages we like, we can almost get the Bible to say what we want it to say, right? I mean, I'm sure you've heard some of these, Brian. You've heard someone who, if you try to, even with gentleness and truth, call out sin, they say, well, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. But they don't go to the end of the story where Jesus told the woman called in adultery, go and sin no more. They, they only want to look at part of the counsel of God. And even just a couple of weeks ago, you know, Jesus made this promise to the disciples that anyone who had sacrificed for the gospel and for the kingdom of heaven would receive a hundred times as much. And I've heard preachers preach on that. But man, they often don't, they don't preach on the last phrase that Jesus promised in that same verse. Jesus said, you'll also have persecution, right? So we, we can't just look at the highs, we have to look at the lows, which again is what we're asking today. How do we respond in our following of Jesus in both the highs and the lows? Yeah, John, as you mentioned earlier, in the Matthew version, we can tell that the crowd's praise God for the son of David again. So son of David was a, was a moniker for the messianic king, the, not the suffering servant, but the conquering king. And this is what they were expecting. In fact, this is, you know, in some translations, it says the word Hosanna, which literally means in Greek, save now. Yeah, it's a transliteration of a Hebrew term. And like you just said, Brian, it, it means save now or please save 
And it's a term with great emotion. It, it's, it's begging, really. It, it's begging, please save us, save us now. The crowds are begging for deliverance. They want deliverance from the Roman Empire. They want Israel to be reestablished to a place of prominence. And what they don't realize, what they're unaware of, is Jesus did come to save them. Jesus did come to deliver, but he came to deliver them from something much greater, sin and death. That is why Jesus came. You know, Jesus was a teacher. Jesus was a healer. He was a miracle worker. But his primary mission was to be the Lamb of God that would be sacrificed for the sins of the world. And so this triumphal entry is the start of the fulfillment of the promise made all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, where God promised that the seed of the woman would have his heel bruised by the serpent, but that he would crush the serpent's head. This is going to look like failure for a moment. But with his death and resurrection, this is the ultimate deliverance. This is the ultimate victory over the enemy and over death and over sin. So he was, in fact, going to save now like they were asking, just not in the way that they expected. And Jesus entered Jerusalem boldly and with much fanfare. He wasn't trying to sneak in undetected, even though he was well aware of the intentions of the religious leaders. And I think this had to be encouraging for the disciples. You know, we saw that, that they were filled with awe. They were afraid as they were heading into Jerusalem. So to see Jesus entering so boldly and not be intimidated by the religious leaders, I think that had to give them some comfort seeing how Jesus was responding to the event. And yet all of this like climactic frenzy, the triumphal entry, all of this stuff that we see in those in those verses, in the early verses in Mark 11, the story ends, well, almost like ironically, or certainly anticlimactically, because the Mark passage ends, verse 11, Mark 11, verse 11, it just says this. So Jesus came to Jerusalem and went into the temple. And after looking around carefully at everything, he left because it was late in the afternoon. And then he returned to Bethany with the 12 disciples. So John, it's like we have and Mark does a good job with this. It's, he's like a remember, he's like a movie director. We have this this scene of just excitement, and everybody's you know everybody's praising and yelling hosanna to their conquering king, and Jesus is coming in, riding riding it, riding in with all this pomp and circumstance, and then he gets to Jerusalem, and it's like Mark goes out of his way to tell us that it's at least at some point it's like quiet and no where did everybody go? So it's like we go from the the highs on Mount, the Mount of Olives to like this awkward silence, like crickets chirping in Jerusalem in the temple. And then the end of this story, as far as Mark is concerned, is that Jesus just goes back to Bethany with his 12 disciples. So help us to understand this because as people read the parallel passage in Matthew, Matthew seems to include, you know, this is where Jesus goes in and flips over the tables. And there's a lot more in the Matthew account than the Mark account. So what do you think is going on here? Well, Matthew, I think, was writing more to a Jewish audience. So I think it's one of the reasons he stresses the cleansing of the temple. You know, the temple meant more to a, a Jewish audience than the temple did to a, a, a Gentile audience. So maybe that's why. I mean, I'm, I just confess we're guessing a little bit as to why Mark skips over that. But, you know, one of the things we've seen throughout Mark's whole gospel is it's a fast-paced gospel, right? He's he's going from scene to scene to scene, like you mentioned. And for whatever reason, Mark skips that. Mark also kind of skips as Jesus enters into the actual city of Jerusalem. In the other gospels, we read that the city was in an uproar, that it was 
one version says it was electrified. You know, you can, the buzz is everywhere, right? That's what I think of. I think of if, you know, I live in a fairly small town. If, if LeBron James came in, a famous athlete, right? Everybody would be talking about it. And that's what was happening. But Mark chooses to kind of pass by that and go to the end of the day. One of the commentaries I read said, it's easy for us to mistake enthusiasm for faith and popularity for discipleship. I thought that was such a powerful point because clearly that's what's happened with the vast majority of those that were following Jesus as he made his way into the city, shouting Hosanna. They're nowhere to be found now. You know, it's almost like, I don't know if you've watched a movie that you just love the movie and then the last 10 minutes just ruined it for you. It was just a horrible anticlimactic ending. Now, thankfully, we know this isn't the ending, but the ending of this scene, you're going, what in the world? You know what? Why did I get so excited and all this buildup? And then it just, it just kind of fizzles out with Jesus being alone in the temple. But I think there's significance to that. And, and I want to talk a couple of minutes about why I think maybe Mark does it this way. So first off, it says that after looking around carefully, he left because it was late in the afternoon. Now, the original Greek word that's used for looking around here is the same Greek word that was used in chapter 10 when the rich young ruler walked away and, and the passage said Jesus looked around at his disciples. The definition is that it's to closely observe with a sweeping or encompassing look and with high personal involvement or self-interest. Like Jesus is so invested in the people of Jerusalem and, and in the temple, right? This is, this is the place where God dwelt among his people. I hope we don't miss the irony here. The temple was the place God had set aside for his presence to dwell among his people. And now God in the flesh is standing at the temple and no one's around. No one is there to enjoy the presence of God Almighty in the flesh. And not only that, he's soon going to be rejected and plans for his execution are going to be contrived and carried out. And Jesus knows all of this is coming. And so we're looking at this and we're going, well, where, where's all the fanfare? And where are all the people who were praising him as he entered the city? Were they afraid of the religious leaders? Or were they already disappointed that Jesus didn't sweep into Jerusalem and overthrow the Roman occupation? See, I, I, I think when they said, Hosanna, save now, please save us, I think they had an expectation, Brian, that literally that day as Jesus rolled into Jerusalem as the Messiah, he was going to overthrow Rome. And he doesn't. He didn't meet their expectations. So now they're back in this low point. They were on the highest of highs, and now they're in the lowest of lows, and so many of them walk away. And we, we know in the very near future that the crowds are going to be shouting, crucify him, crucify him. And I wonder how many of those voices were the same voices shouting, Hosanna, blessings on the king who comes in the name of the Lord. So do we still praise and follow Jesus when he doesn't live up to our expectations, when we're in the lows? as well as the highs, when he doesn't answer our prayers the way that we think he should? Are we still going to follow him? Are we still going to praise him? Are we still going to lift his name? Do we still recognize he is the Messiah? And so as sad as the scene is, I think it's sad anyway. It, it, it actually grieves my heart. I'd like to think I would have been there with him, but I'm sure I would have wandered away like the crowds. You know, I'm sure if he didn't meet my expectations, it would have been tough to follow. But it's fitting that he was alone at the temple because Jesus alone was able to fulfill God's plan for salvation. 
Nobody could help him do it. You know, as much as the disciples were close to Jesus, as much as they loved him, even though they were imperfect and they were broken, they couldn't help Jesus fulfill this mission. Only Jesus could live the perfect life that was required, and only Jesus could offer the sacrifice that was sufficient for your sins and my sins. First Timothy says it like this, chapter 2, verse 5, there's one God and one mediator who can reconcile God and humanity, the man Christ Jesus. He gave his life to purchase freedom for everyone. And this is what Jesus knew he would be doing. You know, Jesus understood the whole picture. He understood what it was all about, that, that his followers didn't, the crowd at the Mount of Olives didn't, the, the, the leaders in the temple didn't, even his own disciples didn't fully understand it. They couldn't fully grasp who Jesus was, but Jesus knew it. And John, that's such a good insight that I never, I've never really thought about this story from the, vantage, the historical vantage point of the temple that the temple was the place where God's God Himself was to dwell among the people, and here Jesus is, and where are all the people? And that, and just the idea, I, I like I like your insight that m- maybe Mark wanted to paint this picture of Jesus alone at the temple because Jesus alone is the mediator who can reconcile us. I mean, all these all these images are so good for people as they're sort of wrestling with this and what it means for our lives today. And I. You know, I, I, it makes me go back to the question that we started with about highs and lows, you know, for people to relate it to their own lives. Maybe, maybe it'd, it'd be a good thing to do if you're talking about this with a mentor or in a small group, or even just with your family, just to, just to list out some of the highs in your life. And what, what was your relationship with God like at the, in the high points? You know, maybe those spiritual highs that we've had. I, I can think in my own life, John, of a, a lot of times, especially in my early years in youth group and I always love to go to retreats. And, you know, now at our church, our youth group, same thing, those retreats. I went to our last summer fest that, that we had, and the kids were just on fire for Jesus and, and worshiping God and just going all out for Jesus. But I know that school starts a few weeks later, and then you've just got all the, all the temptations, all the, the kind of the message of the world. You've got, you've got all these other things that can pull you away. And then sometimes for people, it's just, you know, you've, you feel you feel depressed or you feel disconnected from God. You, you, you know, you feel like you, you have less, less of a, of a desire to know who he is. And you experience those lows, just even sometimes just even midweek, you experience those lows. And it's, it's such a good question to ask, like, are, are you, are you a different follower when you're at the mountaintop? when you're on the Mount of Olives than, than when you're down in the low spot. And maybe it is, like you said, John, maybe it is because we have only a partial picture of Jesus. We don't fully understand who Jesus is and, and what he really has come to do for us. And again, as our Messiah, as our Savior, as the perfect Lamb of God, only he could do it. So it is fitting that he was there alone. I think of the, you know, the passage in Revelation where everyone's asking, who is worthy? There's only one who is worthy to open the scroll, and that's the Lamb. And so uh, even this, this ending scene is, is the fulfillment of yet another prophecy. You know, that's been another kind of theme throughout this lesson is all the different prophecies that were fulfilled. And Malachi 3, verses 1 through 3 says, Look, I'm sending my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. Then the Lord you are seeking will suddenly come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you look for so eagerly is surely coming, says the Lord of heaven's armies. So we see that the Messiah 
is going to come to the temple. And, and that's exactly what Jesus did as he made his triumphal entry. And one of the things that I hope would encourage our listeners, maybe you're in a low point right now. You know, maybe you're in one of those seasons where you feel like this is awfully tough or you feel like God has let you down. God is always faithful. Uh, I, I love seeing all these prophecies fulfilled when when we're doing some of these New Testament passages and we've been going through the book of Mark and you look back and, you know, think of how many hundreds of years the nation of Israel had to wait to see some of these things fulfilled. Um, but but the prophecies you and I look forward to, the fact that there's going to be a day when you and I get to just bask in the presence of Jesus, when we get to worship him for eternity, that he's coming back again to this world to make all things right, to to restore it the way God had originally intended. Hey guys, those are coming true too. Those are going to be fulfilled too. And I hope that that gives you excitement. I hope that that gives you encouragement. I hope that in the meantime, as we're waiting for those fulfillments, that we're seeking him eagerly, you know, that we're prepared. And when he does come back again, the judgment prophecies are also going to happen that, you know, one day, guys, all of us are going to stand before a perfect and holy, righteous God, and we're going to have to give an account. And we're going to have to give a reason why we deserve to be in his presence. And, you know, the answer is we don't deserve to be in it, but because of what we're going to be studying over the next you know, a couple of weeks because of what Jesus is going to do in the next week as far as, you know, when he entered in Jerusalem, we can have a right relationship with God, that we can be restored to our creator, even though we're broken, even though we've sinned, which is basically a, a fancy way of saying we've gone our way instead of God's way, and we've chosen to follow our own thoughts, opinions, and feelings instead of what God has declared to be true. We've done that. We're guilty of that. But Jesus, and Jesus alone, lived the perfect life that we couldn't live, and he went to the cross. He entered Jerusalem as the Messiah, but as the suffering servant Messiah, and through his suffering, he conquered death, he conquered sin for you and for me.